Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Well, Ed, I have a cold, and mm-hmm. I feel in my head that I sound nothing like Phoebe Buffet when she gets her husky cold and thinks that she sounds all French and chanteuse I'm just hacking up like I've got a furball, so I apologise <laughs> profusely in advance to listeners i i'm hoping that it's shifting but otherwise you can just hear me suffer you know that's an added (laughs) that's an added benefit otherwise i'm super thank you you've been seeing some events at the edinburgh fringe how how has that been going for you so far apart from you know illness really amazing i mean i have as with anything that is such a behemoth in Mm -hmm. culture it's got its problems and I remain critical of them and I think it's important to keep asking for better from the leading arts festival in the world. But in terms of the quality and and just outright experimentation that's still going on, it's really heartening. I've seen some really emotional and insightful and then also just downright fucking funny things and mm-hmm. I've... I'll be here again next weekend. I don't want to go into too much detail because I'll just start enthusing about everything and I'll derail the podcast completely. Maybe I'll round up next time, but there's nothing else quite like it. There really isn't. So yeah, I'm still still a wench for the fringe. <laughs> cool. So we'll go on to the news now and I think uh, it'd be remiss of us not to start off with the story that I think has dominated... A lot of people, certainly my Twitter feed over the last couple of days, and I think, you know, hit a lot of people very hard, which was the death of Aretha Franklin, who passed away this week at the age of 76. And, you know, I think everyone, in in trying to kind of connect her death and her life to film, a lot of people posted things like, you know, oh, she was really great in the Blues Brothers and stuff like that, which admittedly she was, but, like, I don't feel like we need to make that connection in order to talk about her because she was just an amazing artist and person i don't feel like we need to just kind of like tangentially tie it to the fact that she was in a movie once in order to talk about the fact that she was an amazing singer and writer and arranger and performer and all of these things and an activist and just as as a human being alive everything that she went through Mm. in her life and came out the other side and could still bring so much joy and so much incredible music and I was thinking about just to link it to film ever so slightly but I think it I love this quote from Barry Jenkins director of Moonlight oh Moonlight Emily do you like Moonlight (laughs) yes I do gotta find a way to mention it every every time Barry Jenkins said you know there's one song in in Moonlight that's played twice and it's it's an Aretha Franklin song Mm. and it just goes to show her legacy and how relevant she remains to so many different generations of people and her immense talent. I really enjoyed that the Moon uh, account that I th- is is on Twitter was missing her. 
And everyone was like, yeah, there's not many, there's not many people the moon misses. But Aretha Franklin is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I hope, because news broke that she was gravely ill. Mm. And what I hope is that even though if you're not in a good way, it can be really horrible to have people speculating on your demise. What I hope is that she saw the immense amount of support for her and the effect that she had on people before she passed. Because I'm mm. not sure a lot of people, even public figures who, who've passed away recently, understood that or, or get to have a touch of that before they go. So I, ho- I really hope that somehow that got through to her. And I think one of the things that's been really lovely about seeing all of the tributes to her is that and I think this is this is true of a lot of huge significant figures when they pass away is you know that people who maybe weren't familiar with her work will be exposed to it or people who even were exposed to her work and familiar with it were maybe gain a new understanding of it which was certainly the case with me because I you know I, I know a lot of Aretha Franklin's songs just because when I was younger I, I would always buy you know like compilations of different genres when I was first getting into music so I had lots of soul oh, and R&B collect- collections on my iTunes for a very very long time and her death revealed something which I had never realized because I, I I had the Otis Redding version of Respect and no. I had always assumed that that was a cover version because it sounded so <laughs> different and yeah it had such a very different perspective to what her, you know, kind of definitive version of the song uh, had. And I always assumed that he was covering her. And, you know, in several articles about her death, were talked about how, in fact, that was the original. And she, you know, did this this different version, which had a completely different perspective and arrangement. And she and her sisters, I believe, came up with, you know, the famous part of the song, which is R-E-S-P-E-C-T, and turned it from a song about a man wanting respect from his woman to a woman and also in in many ways you know an entire uh, race of people demanding respect from the world for all the suffering that they'd had and that just hit home to me just how significant an artist she was and how lit even though she was an icon and you know like I think everyone who ever heard her sing would say oh yeah clearly one of the, the all-time greatest singers of all time. Totally. I, I, that really hit home for me, just what a significant artist is and how even with all the plaudits for her, she still seems uh, underrated, which is pretty kind of true of like most black artists and most female artists anyway. So I think that that is... Ho- hopefully, you know, this will renew people's interest in her work. Completely, because, I mean, that's true artistry. Because that Otis Redding version of Respect if I may be so bold as to slightly change your definition of it there, Otis Redding singing that song, he's not asking for respect from a woman, he's asking Mm. for complete sublimation. Yeah. That's what that song means when it's sung by a man in that way. What Aretha Franklin managed to do is she managed to reclaim it and make it this joyful and encouraging piece of music that the number of nights out I've been on karaoke. Mm. Um there's nothing quite like seeing a group of women singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T and sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me over and over again. No, I think that's true artistry to take something that previously had been a tool of oppression or a reflection of that and then to turn it around completely and make it your own salvation. Oh, Aretha. Yeah, absolutely. 
so to someone who I think is, I think it's fair to say less iconic, uh, Jack Whitehall this week was announced as playing a character in the forthcoming Disney adaptation of the Jungle Cruise ride, which is, um, I mean, they already own so many properties. Like I think they've got better source material to work from at this point. But um, they're adapting one of their rides into a movie, and they announced that Jack Whitehall is going to be playing their first openly gay character in it, which has stirred a lot of discussion online about the fact that they haven't cast a gay actor which in, to, in that role and then spurs a lot of kind of reverse discussion or, you know, like not not really a debate so much as two sides talking past each other of people then saying, making somewhat bad faith arguments saying like, well, if you can't cast a straight person as a gay person anymore, then that means you can't cast an actor as a scientist unless they have a PhD or something, you know, and, and there's some sort of like weird slippery slope where people can't play any roles ever. And uh, I, personally, I find this this whole the fact that this controversy is about Jungle Cruise seems makes makes the broader discussion seem a lot more frivolous than it actually is because it's a, an important conversation about representation and the fact that you know there aren't really that many roles out there for gay actors and they've decided to give it to a straight actor for seemingly no good reason. Yeah, it, 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 the whole situation to me seems quite quite baffling and bad it's a really yet another disappointing choice from disney Mm. and the thing about jungle cruise is that that is going to be a family film Mm -hmm. and for younger people you don't want the repeat of what happened before which is you know an entire generation particularly in the uk growing up with mr humphreys and are you being served yeah and thinking oh god you know that's that's me that's there was the adaptation of a biopic of Serge Gainsbourg a while ago. And I remember very clearly that as a from a child onwards, he's haunted by this like strange monster caricature of being Jewish. Mm. And that stuff really, really sits deep inside you. And identity is so difficult and so fraught, particularly now. And I think it's I think it's fraught because finally we're talking about it and that protections are being put in place. But it's just such a weird... Because it's not even, like... Not that long ago, we had Brokeback Mountain, right? And I don't remember this kind of discussion happening around Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, who were both, you know, not even assumed to be straight, had had public relationships in the public eye with women and were in this beautiful film and I think play their characters very beautifully. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they were still... They weren't mega mega stars that was a you know a real lynch point in their in the career for for both of them in terms of turning into sort of more serious dramatic roles I don't remember these kinds of discussions around that which is interesting because I think you know that was a more adult film and and maybe and it seemed to be quite quiet and I don't think anyone expected it to do as well as it did Mm. I don't know I'm still uncomfortable about it and I think there's been a lot and a lot more like accepted backlash, particularly in terms of casting cis actors as trans actors. Like that's finally coming back around. Like Scarlett Johansson dropped out of a role recently because of playing a trans man because of public pressure. And that's a good thing. Sexuality again is, I think the problem is, is that even though I, being in the bisexual woman, you know, I think sexuality is fluid and it changes. Mm-hmm. But 
using that argument to justify why you are casting yet again someone who doesn't, as far as I'm aware... I mean, is this Jack Whitehall's I'm Gonna Break America gig? And is he going to perform it as a caricature? What is this storyline? There's so many weird sort of things in this that I can't really see through yet because it's Mm. not like what was his last IMDb credit, the Bad Education movie. Yeah, probably. Or some TV stuff. Or some TV stuff with his dad where he's, you know, immensely posh or there's even more adaptation that he was in recently. And again, if it it is just going to be this kind of goofy, effete character... Why why, why is there a gay character in Jungle Cruise at all? The fact that it has Cruise in the name does not bode well. <laughs> I, it's, mm. it's saddening and maddening, really. And again, it's, it's not even like that one of the main characters is gay because we've got Emily Blunt and The Rock, so there'll probably be something there. I don't know. It feels... It smacks of insincerity to me. Yeah, especially when you consider that Disney purport to be a very progressive company and they often, you know, are out there supporting progressive causes and they champion diversity. Certainly when you look at, you know, some of the stuff they've done, you know, putting out Black Panther and things like that. And they, they do seem to be making strides in that regard, but then they seem to fall back on more conservative tendencies about things like this, you know, think worried perhaps that there's going to be some sort of backlash if they cast a gay character, a gay actor as a gay character in a movie and that they think even just including their first openly gay character in a movie would be such a, a lightning rod for controversy that they don't want to go a step too further, which, I don't know, seems it seems to me like the logic there would be, well, if Christian conservatives or conservative or just, uh, you know, kind of like, right-wingers who want to engage in the culture war are going to go after you anyway. Why not cast a gay actor in that role? Especially because, I mean, if you go into Jack Whitehall, it's not like it's a high-profile role <laughs> that is going to, like, be a huge boon to the box office success. You know, he's not a particularly well-known figure globally or in the US. Like, you could you could cast, I don't know, Russell Tovey or something in there. And yes. it would be... The same, you would get about the same level what about, of... What about Jonathan Groff? Hmm, yeah. You know, he's, totally. he's already, you know, he's brilliant. He's been, he, you know, he played a straight character in Frozen, mm-hmm. uh, admittedly animated. But, you know, that's someone who's done very well with Disney, and yet he wasn't on their list. Yeah. And yeah, if you want an, an Englishman, you've got Tovey, the entire cast of Looking. <laughs> yeah. Just nothing, like... It, Ah, I'm sorry, I just made myself sad again. Well, this will cheer you up. The other, like, final bit of news is uh, news that broke this very weekend and which I think has inspired uh, a lot of schadenfreude on Twitter and online, and and deservedly so, is the story that Kevin Spacey's new movie, The Billionaire Boys Club, grossed a grand total of $126 on its opening weekend in the US and that's not really that surprising considering that as soon as all of the new stories about Kevin Spacey came out that movie pretty much was dead in the water and you know there was no advertising for it I don't think it had a particularly wide release I think it was put out there more or less just to be like well we made it we might as well just see what we can do and uh, yeah I think 
it's like I saw some people online kind of like poo-pooing a lot of the responses to it by saying things like, you know, a lot of people worked hard on that movie and a lot of people, you know, got, uh, you know, a lot of hard-working crew and things like that. And I kind of thought, well, I mean, they already got paid. Like, I don't think they'll lose much sleep over the fact that this one movie, which turned out to be made involving a massive, you know, kind of creep and predator didn't do very well is going to lose them that much sleep and even the other members in the cast like I don't think Anzo Elgort or Emma Roberts is going to be losing many opportunities because this one movie did uh, almost sarcastically bad you're right Ed that has cheered me up thank you (laughs) (laughs) so our main topic of discussion this week uh, is the history and legacy I suppose of Play for Today now Play for Today was a anthology series or programming strand that ran on the BBC from 1970 to 1984 I believe where every episode would be a individual play or sometimes you would get two parters and we'll probably talk about one of those in in a few minutes but basically they would offer individual stories each week for people to tune in and they provided a kind of launching pad or or, or, or were a, an important stepping stone for a lot of writers and directors and actors who would go on to huge success like probably the two, two of the most famous who are still currently working be Ken Loach and Mike Lee who both produced some of the more famous episodes of Play for Today but you also had people like uh, uh, Dennis Potter who went on to create stuff like uh, Pennies from Heaven and the singing detective who who produced a bunch of episodes for them uh, people like Barry Hines wrote episode for them all of these kind of people who emerged out of in some cases the angry young man movement of the 50s and 60s or just out of the the growth of British realism in cinema and plays uh, during that period or all the British new wave all of these people who maybe had got their start there were in some cases given an extra boost by being able to produce plays which were then viewed on prime time by millions of people uh, and in some cases you know they provided opportunities for people during the, the the 70s which was a very lean period for British cinema when you when you think that at the time most of the biggest grossing British movies of the era were you know the confessions of a window cleaner kind of stuff like all of the soft core stuff which was very very popular at that time more so than you know whatever Ken Loach wanted to make and uh, you suggested this topic uh, when we were talking off mic last week about uh, in this corner of the world, and you know the way I described it reminded you of uh, a Ken Loach movie called The Price of Coal. So uh, I think we'll we'll start there and talk about The Price of Coal a little bit and why that film in particular was uniquely suited to being aired as part of this this strand. I guess I did see. I saw The Price of Coal back in our previous stomping ground Ed, in mm. Sheffield at the showroom. Yeah. It, was a, it was a screening with Ken Loach present. And the first thing that really struck me was you watch it and it because it's shot on film, when mm. you screen it as a film, it looks like a film, which may sound a bit daft, but there's a lot of TV out there, particularly around about that time, that would not look like a film, even if it's been yeah. shot on film. So I think not only in terms of its opportunities for writing and directing and performing, the cinematography, all of them have really interesting styles and looks to them. And most of them are a sort of film length. 
around about 90 minutes. Although this varies because there is just so much variety within it, which is one of the things that's brilliant. And the price of coal really struck me because it essentially forms its own little um, double bill where it follows a group of miners somewhere near Barnsley mm-hmm. um, in South Yorkshire. And the first so 45 minutes is called the Royal Visit. And we follow the miners, the management of the mine, the miners' families, all waiting to have this royal visit bestowed upon them. I can't remember if it's Prince Charles or Andrew. or It is Charles, yeah. It is Charles, right. It's all about this anticipation, all the varying views. Um, The management are beside themselves. They're really excited. The actual miners couldn't give a toss. Mm -hmm. But it's really funny. It's There's lots of power dynamic struggles and a lot of that really again angry young man stuff there's one very serious monologue where the main protagonist kind of takes everyone to task in the pool table and says you know we, we're joking about it but that's all we can do and that's mm. indicative of the power structure here and and it's a really rousing and, and brilliant moment that then kind of gives makes everyone aware of the stakes that are actually happening. But then the second half of The Price of Coal then follows everyone that you've just seen in a horrific mining accident. And it it's almost real time. I mean, it's, it's sort of over the day, but the, the way that you're watching it when watching anything that's like a horrific accident and everyone scrambling about trying to find what's going on, it just feels that much more immediate and rapid. And it's so powerful because you have got to know these people and you care about these people because you've just seen them laughing and joking and disagreeing but still getting on with each other at the same time and even though that second part is incredibly powerful by itself to have that investment to really know these people makes it even more wretched of this accident and just thinking oh god who's and it puts you exactly in the position of so many families Mm-hmm. of miners and it doesn't make them just oh the poor miners you know even though in both instances they're fighting up against what is pushing them down whether it's socially or you know just the actual risk the massive risk involved in in mining they do it with such grace and, and they become fully fleshed people i also like the price of coal because i think it's one of ken loach's most interesting and least on the nose propagandist film i think it's 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 got a lot more nuance to it um than a lot of his work even though Mm. another play for today kathy come home was instrumental in shelter being set up because of the public outcry that people realized oh homelessness is a thing and we should probably try and do something about that but the price of coal for me just really brings together what i think is the axis of so many of what makes play for today such an interesting um, strand is that it has the humour, it has a social commentary, it has people who are not seen on TV an awful lot, it's working class, it's northern, there's so much talent just in every direction on it. And it's something that I think about quite a lot. (laughs) Mm. I was really struck by the fact that the main character is played by Bobby Nutt, who... yes. 
is uh, one that 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 name means nothing to anyone who didn't live in Sheffield for um, the last forty years. But uh, he was a comedian who lived in Sheffield and was kind of, and certainly in the last ten years prior to his death last year, was kind of uh, omnipresent during Christmas when he would always be in the pantos at the Crucible Theatre. But in addition to the to looking exactly like Mark Maron, uh, <laughs> oh my god, yes, <laughs> he, I, I think he brings a lot of that kind of warmth to it, and uh, that that you would expect of someone who was you know kind of a, a working class comedian who's going out there and performing in front of people every night and is able to generate just kind of a instant bonhomie with people. And I think that what the first half of the Price of Cold does really well is it demonstrates something that. Loach is or can be incredibly good at which is creating that sense of camaraderie and also of a kind of class consciousness that isn't like you say isn't on the nose and isn't entirely kind of like browbeating the audience with its own sense of you know importance it's basically a group of people who are who know that they are as the miners they are working with but also kind of in opposition to management and management also feeling like they're working with but also in opposition to the people who want to do the visit and things like that and i think it does a really good job of presenting this fairly complicated situation and these series of uh, uh, contrasting aims and desires in a way that does feel like a really funny light-hearted episode of of like a you know like an Alfie de Saint Pet style comedy drama, and that only like you say it, it makes the second half when things go horribly awry feel all the more tragic. And I think that's uniquely suited to television in that regard because the first half aired as its own episode one week, and then the second half aired the following week. So you have these two interlinked but distinctive films with their own tone. And I think if you were to try and do that as like a two-hour movie, it would be greeted somewhat with somewhat perplexed looks if people were like, well, it started out as one thing, but then it became something entirely different. You know, maybe people would praise it as like a really bold thing, like a Boogie Nights thing where it hinges upon one tragic event and then shifts tone. But it, it it really does work when you compartmentalize it like that and you kind of like say, okay, part one, meet the people, is like this really, really funny, almost like the Fireman's Ball-esque social realist comedy. And then the second part is, you know, with very little difference in style because they're both shot, you know, uh, in a, like I say, a social realist style. They don't have, I think, much or any music at all. But because they are presented so similarly, but depict such very different events, it does really feel as if you're watching two contrasting parts of a bigger story, but be, but not having kind of foreshadowing in the first one of like, oh, something terrible is going to happen, does make the second one more impactful in that way. And, you know, the, the, the traditional three-act structure would seem to preclude doing something like that if you would do it as a traditional feature film. Completely. And I think The Price of Coal is definitely the one that feels most like a play because you mm. have an interval. Yeah. And you can you can establish what they have in the first half. And I think, it, like you say, I think it's quite bold and 
it feels less patronizing to have this foreshadowing of the second in the in the first part because there isn't any yeah and i think what feels so brilliant and vital about the price of coal is that it is not people imagining what it's like to sit in a working men's club in Barnsley. It is people who have sat there, who have listened, who've grown up there, who've been party to those conversations themselves. There is not one bit of it that you don't look at and not believe. You understand the networks of these people. You understand how they relate to each other or don't, how they talk to each other. And that, I think, is something throughout play for today as well. There is a more often social realism slant than not across Mm. all of it and it was a prime place for these kinds of working class voices Um, and I'll talk a bit more about when we get to the legacy of it but I also watched Nuts in May Mm. which is a Mike Lee directed and and written but I think it's again Mike Lee style I do think that there's a fair bit of um, improvisation in it as well yeah and uh, talking about being on the nose but then I think I still really I think this is exactly where you want to be on the nose Nuts in May follows a married couple the Pratts they are Mr (laughs) and Mrs Pratt Uh, Keith and and Candice Marie who are just trying to have a nice camping holiday but Keith is very into his um, his structured fun yeah all of their meals are planned and the reasons behind them are given in terms of whether they'll get protein from this or, you know, cocoa for a treat. He's clearly adores Candice Marie, but will still tick her off for trying to take a pebble on the beach as a souvenir because what if everyone did that? There would be no beach left. <laughs> and they just want to kind of create a little world for themselves and live in it. And this is abruptly ruined by... A guy who's called Ray, who's perfectly affable, but plays his music and will turn it off. But there seems to be a bit of uh, sexual tension between Ray and Candice Marie. And then more of Ray's friends turn up. And it's just this really, I think it's the, one of the best character driven things I've ever seen. Because not a lot actually happens, really. Yeah. You know, they go to Corfe Castle. It's nice. Ray goes to Corfe Castle. They swap guidebooks. But it's all about these people's ideals. And it's a lot to do with class mm. and a lot to do with what you do with your leisure time. And I think it's kind of a a really interesting piece of the kind of up-and-coming lower middle class or upper working class or whatever you want to call it. Because it, it's this... They're so specific about their diet. They're so specific about kind of their behaviours. They They write all these weird songs together i'd love i i kept wondering i, I wonder where keith and candace marie met how they got together like i'm really interested mm. to know how they would because there's a there seems to be a slight age difference a slight class and upbringing difference but and yet and at times they seem complete polar opposites but they are actually perfect for each other there's mm. so much in it that character study that i don't think i've ever seen anything quite as rich in terms of all these little character kind of quirks and it's this really strange little story that ended up being so influential I think because it managed to really grasp a particular social stereotype or or character study that was kind of coming out even if you don't know them you know someone a bit like them or you've shared Mm. a camping site with with these people and that's one that doesn't isn't necessarily full of like heavy 
social commentary, but it is a really interesting and very funny meditation on class and Keith Pratt as this. I think there's a lot of Keith Pratt and Alan Partridge. Keith Pratt's a much nicer man, but he Mm -hmm. is a very particular Englishman, kind of king of his own domain and a, a little bristly, but always very polite. Yeah. So as a study of kind of the spirit of a certain spirit of English masculinity, there's absolutely nothing that compares to Nuts in May. Yeah, I was as I was watching it, I was thinking Keith seems like patient zero for an entire generation of sketch characters. Oh God, yeah. Because not only do you see like partridge, there's a lot of partridge in there, but I also found myself thinking about a lot of the characters in the League of Gentlemen, like there's a certain uh, Edwards, Edward and Tubbs oh, kind of yes. feel to him and the way that he addresses people, or the Steve Pemberton character, the nudist, you know, uh, yes. who always is like very prim and proper and doesn't want anything to be out of place and things like that. Like I found myself thinking this this archetype, like I don't know if. Mike Lee and his cast created this archetype, but they certainly crystallised a lot of elements of it and perfected it in some ways. And I think that, you know, there's a reason why when Sightseers came out, the Ben Wheatley movie, like everyone talked about it as being like Nuts in May meets, you know, X horror movie, (laughs) you know, because like that is another one about people going camping and wanting to be just so, but instead of being kind of like, uh, quietly seething about it, you know, you, you beat people over the head and throw them off bridges. Uh, well, the thing is, sightseers yeah. is nuts in May. If Keith hadn't managed to calm down, yes, I don't think it's, it's even. Uh, cro- I don't think it's even crossed with a horror film because that essentially mm-hmm. for for Keith experientially, it is his nightmare. It is his yeah. horror film. But I think you're right. I think it manages to be sort of a zeitgeist of a certain time because it's just so adoringly sort of late seventies. Some of some of Candice Marie's outfits are incredible. I love her glasses, the camping equipment, and the the quite kind of um, the food as well. It's it's a zeitgeisty thing of of place and time and and like you say, archetype. Mm. And I think you see a lot of that in Mike Lee's other like very famous play for today, uh, Abigail's Party, which also stars Alison Steadman. Uh, in like such a wildly different role from the character she plays in Nuts in May that I had to look up who was playing playing the roles because I was like, I couldn't believe they were the same person. They're so wildly different and they, they capture such different images, I think, of British, you know, kind of like class consciousness and, you know, like the, the and placing people into... But both are very good at placing people of very different backgrounds in a place and then serving a sort of a pressure cooker until things inevitably bubble over into, uh, you know, kind of like anger or disgust, (laughs) which seems to be something that uh, he really seems to enjoy doing as part of his, his work with Play for Today. Mike Lee is totally that. And I think of, you know, going forward to his films, that incredible shot of the barbecue in Secrets and Lies where... No, mm. the camera doesn't move, everyone else moves in and out, but it feels like they're all being contained in this kind of fishbowl. 
and I adore Abigail's party. I think it is still just so revealing about culture. And the thing about Abigail's party is that it, you know, it's very different from Nuts in May. And the look of it's very different for a couple of different reasons. It's all set, like no no one really gets any respite. It, it is more like a play because you have one location. Mm-hmm. He, people will move on and off, quote unquote, stage, but they can't really escape. And we are with them the whole way. And it's shot in a studio, so the, the it looks very different as well, as opposed to the outdoor film of Nuts in May. I think Alison Sedman is one of the most underappreciated, overlooked actresses ever. She is mm. an absolute gem. I think that portraying these two very different sides of the coin of, of these two particular femininities in the 70s, like Candace Marie has a more kind of meek, hippie vibe, which... Funnily enough, sort of, you know, she's so adoring of Key, even mm. though she kind of has this possible temptation in Ray. Whereas uh, Beverly just absolutely, just she is suburban sex. Like, yeah, she any anything that the slightest provocate, you know, she will bring it all back to that. And she is clearly wanting more. She doesn't really seem like an unsatisfied woman. That's the interesting thing. She just has these appetites. She has this kind of exhibitionist streak to her and I was funny enough I was watching Spaced the other day where mm-hmm. Daisy and Tim have their flat warming party and it reminds me so much of Abigail's party in so many ways because the cooler party is the teenage girl next door um oh, yeah. and the other thing I learned about because um before everything you know became confirmed about Louis CK I really loved Horace and Pete I really did and I'm still figuring out how to make peace with that. But Horace and Pete has this very um, similar sort of look. It's the bottom of the bar and the apartment at the top and through various different decades, but you are basically just there. But the thing that made me feel a little bit better about it is that Annie Baker, who is the most phenomenal playwright, wrote a play called The Flick, which is probably Mm. just now her most well-known work about three people who work in the cinema, was a major influence on Horace and Pete and I like to think she just wrote it all herself didn't really get the credit just to make me feel better but then another major influence I think because Annie Baker brought in and said you know Abigail's party and and Lucy Kay had never seen it before was blown away by it which is kind of crazy to me because I mean well obviously like would why would he see it necessarily but it Abigail's party I've just always been ambiently aware of it because it is such a cultural milestone because so many Mm. people saw it and it's something that just gets passed on and on and on and is so influential and I think it's interesting what you say there about the disgust I think there's a kind of it's a bit Edward Albee as well who's afraid of Virginia Woolf where you've got these kind of dueling shifting allegiances about age about gender about marriage about who's drunk or not it manages to get across so much of that very particular English social society awkwardness. Like Abigail's mm. mother, who ends up having to be sick because she's just been force-fed so many hors d'oeuvres because she's just too polite to say no. When Beverly gets a, a nice bottle of red wine and says she'll put it in the fridge, mm-hmm. this collective cringe on behalf of a nation. Um, <laughs> and and again, something something where up until pretty much the very end, not wanting to spoil it, nothing really happens. But mm. it is it is character. And the characters that Mike Lee created through with his cast 
through play for today are just such linchpins of culture going forward. And I think it's interesting that you say in terms of, you know, they become the archetypes for lots of sketch characters. Like, I think there's an awful lot of Beverly and Nighty Night, Julia Davis's um, yeah. Jill. I think there's a lot of her in that. And uh, But you don't really get many archetypes out of, who are so specific out of TV, I don't think, beyond your kind of generic, ooh, cop with a troubled past. <laughs> Do you know I mean? Mm-hmm. They're so nuanced and there's so much detail to them that's revealed in a really beautiful way. And yet, again, Abigail's party does have a tonal shift, which I think it, it measures and, and holds on very well and does feel like a play in the way that it ends as well. Yeah, and I think there are specific details in it which definitely... Because I, I think Abigail's party was staged as a play before they made it for TV... And again, it was devised in the same way that Mike Lee devises all of his work, where he comes up with sort of a general idea and characters and then, you know, sits and works it all out with the the characters. And then they filmed pretty much the final version Uh, and stuff like the the bit where Town and and, uh, Beverly's husband kind of go out to check on the other party and then they come back and uh, I think Tony has got water on him and there's never it's never explained what happened when they went outside but Mm. the way that the two characters kind of look at each other over the course of it you kind of get the sense they must have had some sort of fight or disagreement or like something about the way beverly talks to tony has really kind of like upset her husband you know has has made him feel uh emasculated or something and i really like how that they 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 keep that play like ambiguity to it. They don't feel like okay, this is for TV now. We need to show what happened outside or whatever. It's like no, we're doing this the same as we did it on stage. We're going to just have the focus on the what's happening in their house in specifically in this room, and then we're not going to extrapolate anything from there. We're just going to leave the audience to sit with this incredible and strange and awkward situation and and until a point where you know it becomes unbearable and uh, that is hugely hugely effective uh, and it's kind of, it's easy to see like watching it now even so far removed how why it became such a touchstone and such a phenomenon when it was first aired it's an atmosphere that feels physical and mm. having that yeah in your own home either being stuck in it in the theater or welcoming it into your own home something else and also in terms of you know the the variety of the kinds of stories that could be told in this kind of very broad idea of okay we're just going to show a play and whatever that means you know uh, is left up to the people involved to determine what that play is going to be i also watched uh, scum the alan oh. clark movie which famously or, or the, the the tv play which was famously not aired until many years later because um it's brutal and <laughs> very hard to watch uh even in its kind of like slightly toned down version that was intended for tv before they remade it as a movie and i also watched the dennis potter play brimstone and treacle where which also was not aired and was turned into a movie before it ended up being aired on television which is an incredibly playful and dark play about a young man who 
accosts this kind of like older middle class gentleman played by Denham Elliott when they're on the street and pretends that he knows him and then kind of inveigles himself into his life and as the the story goes along and I say as it goes along but like within the first like 15-20 minutes of it you're like oh this guy is the literal devil (laughs) and he is going to mess with these people that is such a wildly different work of art in terms of the tone you know like the 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 character played by michael kitchen looks to the camera all the times and talks to the audience directly is very brechtian and they have this like ironic use of pop music which is something that you you think of as being like an invention of the 90s or the 80s but is on full display in this kind of mid-70s work of absurdist discomfort and uh, i i was really struck by how bold and inventive that was for a British, something that aired on British television when we tend to think now of British television as being fairly cosy and you also have this image of television of the past as being similarly cosy because I think a lot of the stuff that has been handed down through the years, either through repeats or just in terms of the things that you know people of older generations talk about, you think of like 70s British TV as the good life or whatever you know, it, 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 it really fe- struck me as an example of what British TV could do at its at its best and what, for the most part, no one really tries to do anymore. Yes, I think Dennis Potter definitely managed to stick his uh, claws into being the TV provocateur through his... See, this is the thing, I keep wanting to say plays for today, play for today's, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what the plural is, but his um, contributions definitely were much more experimental and dreamlike that he then, you know, went on to really sort of um, push in things like The Singing Detective. And I watched um, his uh, Blue Remembered Hills, mm. which is a really, um, it includes Helen Mirren in the cast and it follows a group of school children during the Second World War who are played by adults. Right. So there's your there's your theatrical gimmick that's you know mm. planting the flag quite clearly and it is it turns funny and foreboding and very yeah quite quite arty but in a in a palatable way it manages to not be pretentious somehow i think because there is such tragedy running through it but it's yeah it's it's a great bit of dennis potter I think the only thing is, is that, I mean, we talk about great variety and things, but I was looking at, there's an amazing online resource, um, British History Project, I think it's called. Um, maybe we can include it in them um, for, our, for our listeners. Um, yep. But within that, it, it details every single play for today, and it tells you the writer and the producer, the director, when it was broadcast. And looking through it and, and reading some of the really interesting articles that are available there, out of about 300 plays were were broadcast between in its in its 14 year run and three of those were written by women which is a one percent representation over 14 years in a in a in a program strand that had 300 i mean that kind of boggles you do have these incredible figures like there are lots of female producers but there have always been lots of female producers at the bbc but you have someone like irene shiblick who's amazing and and clearly lots of people being able to hone their craft and just have opportunity after opportunity to make really interesting work. But again, it's still across the board, generally very white and working class. Um, And now I do wonder, it's interesting. You can kind of see looking forward, 
and trying to see we've already touched on in terms of like particular characters or auteurs that cut their teeth and play for today and how influential they've been so that's kind of a legacy of it but in terms of a legacy of the format and a legacy of the other kind of themes and what it was trying to achieve I can't really see that anywhere like anthologies are not big anymore not on the scale that play for today was now arguably I think you could say the only thing that's really on the BBC in particular that's anything like it is inside number nine and that's Mm. still very different you know they're half hour they're definitely tv they're made by the same creative team with a few other people kind of coming in and out as guest stars so it's very much a particular vision of um Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton don't get me wrong I'm, I'm very down with it there's lots of hits just as many misses but that's kind of it sky arts had like sky arts playhouse that featured kind of half hour again play like things but still very still looked very much more like tv and every so often you'll get really nice one-offs like i remember kind of in the early 2000s there was kind of a penchant for the bbc to do essentially almost like tv films that felt very play for today there's one from 2005 called After Sun that has Peter Capaldi Mm -hmm. and follows a couple on a holiday and and they're tired and they're not actively fighting but they're not actively getting on either and over the course of this holiday they kind of manage to um, through meeting the apparently perfect couple it it brings their own relationship into focus and and how they go forward with each other and that felt very play for today and a bit of a kind of updated nuts in May. There's still very sort of that dynamic in it. But I just, I don't see where that is now. I mean, you've got lots of incredible writers like Jimmy McGovern and um, there's still every so often a series about that is more Northern generally and, and does look at a wider group of people, but there's just not, there's nothing that's like anywhere near on the scale of it. And that makes me really sad. Yeah, I... In terms of influence, the only thing I can think of is like more just like we were talking about, pe- but that people like Ken Loach, Mike Lee, and Stephen Polyakov, who all worked on Play for Today at one point or another, are still working. Stephen Polyakov is probably the person who most embodies that idea because mm. he has, I mean, he hasn't done it as much recently. I think the last thing he did was that show with. Chiwetel Ejiofor, which I think was called Standing on the Edge or something like that, where he played like a a pianist. But for a while, that's what he kind of did, was he would do TV movies or miniseries stuff like The Lost Prince or Touching the Past. And again, that was more like every couple of years, this big prestige program from a specific writer who is known for doing this sort of thing would come out. There isn't really that same sense that you get with with Play for Today, where it's like, okay... We're doing 20 episodes a year or however many they did. I think it, it must work out as about 20 a year if uh, if they did 314. We're going to do 20 episodes a year. Each one, more or less, is going to be from a different team. And, you know, we, we'll maybe return to the same writers every so often. But essentially it's new, something new every week. You know, there isn't really anything on that level that still exists. And I think that is a shame because even if you were to do something like that now and you only did it, like, six episodes a year or ten episodes a year or something, there would be 
so many more opportunities to kind of get people from different backgrounds to come in and tell those sort of stories and, and it, it probably could be a boon to the BBC in terms of its position as a public service broadcaster of allowing people from different backgrounds to air different stories and, and maybe to diff- make political points that are outside the mainstream which was something as well that you saw a lot in play for today and why it became a bit of a lightning rod for a lot of conservatives at the time and certainly a lot of the conservatives now if they talk about it talk about it as being kind of like you know this sort of preachy thing that was like really trying to move public policy and on some level like certainly that's i think a lot of part of what, ken, what people like ken loach used it for but it was also saying you know to go back to the price of coal saying hey there's this huge swave of the country that is not seeing themselves in art let's make things about them so that people can be exposed to their lives let's do it on in a format that is accessible and mainstream and is going to be watched by millions upon millions of people and it feels like if the BBC did something even with a modicum of the ambition of what the old series was like you know it could be of great societal value if you know you had people going out and and making like plays about what it's like to be like a young Muslim in Britain that feels like a perspective that is largely absent from mainstream British culture even though it's a significant part of the population who is routinely demonized you know there's also you know not not to kind of like go into the, the whole thing about the white working class being ignored but there aren't that many works about the white working class anymore so it would be nice to see something that actually accurately depicted that instead of having it being a, a talking point that is broadly talked about for political reasons. And yet not, you know, not just plays about, but by. But from. But yeah. from. That was what was so amazing about it and that it was it was always there. And you're right, there's not much now. There's certainly not... You know, you, you'll get... What the BBC generally has now is BBC Writers' Room and there are occasionally opportunities for writers to create little strands like um there's bbc writers room the break which are strands that you can Mm. still see i think they're on youtube and and on iplayer and these are tiny shorts that people have have, have written in about you know of, of, of varying um levels of establishment in terms of the writers but that's already the most varied thing i've seen from the bbc rather than um on um, broadcast television and it's a shame that it does seem to be essentially something that's quite industry and quite internal yeah rather than in the same way that we've discussed before in terms of short films that it's not front and center public service broadcasting anything that fucks off michael gove i think we should be screening 24 7 mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i think that's a good place to end it on <laughs> that can uh... be my parting shot yeah <laughs> We end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? It has to be Mitski's new album, Be the Cowboy. Oh, yes. I adore Mitski. She is this particular strand of pithy millennial melancholy that just soothes my soul. And I listen to it as, I believe the ute say, as soon as it dropped... I listened mm-hmm. to it on Spotify, walking across Edinburgh on a particularly dreary day. And it's great. It's interesting that she seems to be kind of incorporating these other little kind of borrowing from things like country music and sometimes still being quite like guitar heavy and then being quite electronic. 
And it's exciting to hear someone who's really finding her stride and playing with it more. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I listened to that today and uh, I thought it was it was fantastic. It really hit the Sharon Von Etten earlier pre kind of like pop superstardom St. Vincent itch that mm. uh, is always always there to be scratched for me because that's I, I just love wispy women voices singing over about melancholy there's uh there's a lot of venn diagrams of things i like and that that album is is really fantastic i'm going to steal from your pay- playbook and recommend two things hey. um, <laughs> for once um but they're, but they're both related the first of which uh is a profile in the washington post of jimmy carter which ran a couple of days ago which i think is um a really beautiful piece of writing talking about him as you know this person who is very unique in terms of the american presidents of the 20th century certainly of the ones that are are still around in that he you know he was president for four years he lost the 1980 election and then he just returned to his hometown of plains georgia and he's lived there for 40 something years and used his position instead of as a way of accruing you know kind of tremendous wealth which is something that a lot of the former presidents have done well basically all the former presidents have done he has used it to advocate for his own causes you know he has been a tremendous humanitarian building houses curing diseases in africa and things like that uh, advocating for a two-state solution in israel and palestine and it's a really beautiful look at a man who is almost impossibly kind of humble in terms of how he chooses to live his life and in terms of advancing the causes that he cares about and i found it to be tremendously moving and that inspired me to watch a documentary that i've been meaning to watch for about 10 years which is the jonathan demi movie jimmy carter man from plains which is a documentary which follows carter over the course of about six months as he's promoting his then recent book palestine peace not apartheid and the controversy that emerges from that. And I think it's a really good documentary because it doesn't try to encapsulate the entirety of Jimmy Carter's life, which at that point, you know, he was in his 80s already. Instead, it focuses on what he's doing at that point. You know, him. it starts with him teaching Sunday school, which he still does pretty much every week in Plains, Georgia, and then follows him on what seems like a fairly grueling book tour of going around to signings and then being grilled by people about his controversial claims in the book and things like that. And I found it to be uh, tremendously illuminating and uh, a wonderfully assembled and structured documentary. Uh, And it made me really miss Jonathan Demme uh, more so than I always miss Jonathan Demme because he was such a wonderful filmmaker. Oh, Jonathan Demme. Yes, I agree. Thank you, Emily, for coming on again. Have you got anything to plug? For once, no. Uh, I'm technically giving myself a holiday or as much a freelancer can give oneself a holiday being here at the Fringe uh, with my cold. So, no, nothing. The last episode of Volume 1 of Past Tense came out. That is very true. Check that out. Uh, That is very true, and I urge you all to check it out. And we'll be having a little hiatus before we get back to uh, work on Volume 2. But the entirety of Volume 1 is there for the taking. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and please rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends as the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.